Intersection is brought to you by Social Health Institute, exploring new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategies. Learn more at socialhealthinstitute.com. And just the, the severity of his illness so overnight changed our situation that, you know, we just, we needed help. Welcome to Intersection. I'm Bobby Rutu, storyteller. My name is Allison Green. Um, I have worked in healthcare for over 25 years, um, not in a clinical role per se, um, mostly in marketing, public relations, and for a period of seven years, I was also a patient advocate. Um, I have a background in um, Christian social ministries and also um, a master's degree in journalism. Um, I am a single mother. I've been divorced for 19 years. Uh, My son John is my second child, and he is single and lives in, in the same town that I do. My daughter is married with children and a career and husband, and she lives about five or six states away. Um, and that's important because, my saying that, because um, John and I really were alone a lot of the time in this now eight-year journey. For anyone who has suffered a serious illness, whether personally or with a child, anyone facing the challenges of an autoimmune disease, and any medical professionals who have worked to help them, Allison Green has walked in these shoes. I met Allison in 2013 while working on a story for the South Carolina Hospital Association advocating for the South Carolina legislature to consider expanding Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Her son's story became the central focus of this video story, one of heart, soul, trials, and tribulations. Allison has worked in healthcare communications for more than 25 years and currently works for a large healthcare system in the upstate of South Carolina. Allison's story has so many intersections intertwined with one basic narrative. Her son John almost died. Since that moment, she has spent over five years fighting and navigating a system that has employed her, not only fighting for John's life and care, but also fighting a healthcare delivery system entangled with bureaucratic and political dilemmas that a seasoned healthcare communicator can barely unwind. So answer this question, it all started when? Just complete the sentence and go. It all started in 2010. Um, The specific day, April 13th, 2010, when my young adult son at age 26 was um, admitted to the hospital. And um, that is the day that changed our lives. Describe that day. Um, John had always been incredibly healthy. I mean, nothing but ear infections or sports accidents. He was 26. He finished college. He was working. Everything is, you know, I'd taken a breath. And for a few months, he had been sick just flu-like, and um, since the fall, like November of, of 2009, 
He had not had a physician since he left the pediatricians. He was going just to urgent cares, um, just frequent symptoms, flu-like, then joint pain, then fatigue so extreme. Um, he couldn't get up in the mornings. He would go home at lunch from his job to collapse for a couple of hours. Um, I finally learned that he was um, had been coughing up blood. Um, so finally, um, he, he balked every time we, we'd gotten him into uh, internal medicine doctor. She had started doing tests for everything under the sun, um, including AIDS, um, and, and still just didn't know what was happening. This had been going on for seeing her for about six weeks. He had had three visits. He was hurting so bad, he had his arm um, twisted above his head, and that was how he would even try to sleep because the shoulder pain was so extreme. They had him on strong painkillers, um, nothing. We had no idea. And finally, um, he got to a point where he didn't fight me when I said, we have got to go to the emergency room. I got him to the emergency room at 6 a.m., um, and it was there, and this was a small hospital. I was working at the time at Baptist Easley, um, and I took him there because I knew they would take us seriously and the wait wouldn't take forever. And um, it was a doctor there, a hospitalist there, who um, first diagnosed it as Wegener's granulomatosis. What is that? That is a very rare autoimmune disease that affects maybe one in 25,000 people. Um, they have since changed the name. It goes by GPA, um, granulomatosis with polyangitis or something like that, GPA. Um, and basically, the body's... Um, capillaries start, um, the tissues start attacking the capillaries and um, they start hemorrhaging. And so what was literally happening was that he was bleeding out internally and um, and we have no idea why. Um, after months, um, both at the Greenville Hospital and at Duke, um, with at Duke, the best rheumatologist in the country. She has been doing Wegener's research for the past now 25 plus years. Um, they had no idea. They idiopathic, which, as the doctors there said, that makes us all makes us all look like idiots. Um, so out of nowhere, just out of nowhere, and from that April 13th day, he never left a hospital for four months. And I work in healthcare, and you know, it's a long stay if somebody stays 48 hours. And he never left a hospital for four months, um, seven weeks in Greenville, the rest of the time at Duke. Um, when he left there, he went for one week to intensive rehab um, back in Greenville. So, really more than four months um, of intensive hospitalization, most of that time in ICUs. He was intubated three times, um, finally with a trach, 
in a feeding tube. Um, he was in an induced coma several times, um, that last time for three to four weeks. Um, and he was not responding to any of the treatment that, that they knew to do, which the standard um, drug at the time was cytoxin, which is um, a type of chemotherapy. They were given a massive doses of that, which is very hard on the body, has toxic effects. They were giving him massive doses of steroids, literally one gram a day for a time, and he was continuing to bleed out. Um, primarily, the times that the three times that he literally momentarily was just dying um, was because his lungs were bleeding out the trach, and um, all they could do was just keep transfusing. I mean, just transfusion after transfusion and plasmapheresis and um, just hoping that he could hang on until somehow his body stopped attacking him. Um, and he did. And, um, you know, I just, there's so many miracles in that part of it. Um, for me, a lot of prayer, um, the best doctors in the world, um, and I think mostly just John's, my son's refusal to die. I mean, he just, um, he just, he'd always been a really strong athlete, always really stubborn, and um, as he wrote about it later, you know, he just he said, I wasn't ready to die. I hadn't lived my life. I didn't know what my life was about. I still had things to do. The first time you and I met was, I went back and found it, was 2013. And um, our mutual friend, who I was working together on a project, Patty Smoke, reached out to you because she heard you had a story. Um, talk about the beginning of what you, what began our relationship, you know, our visit, what was the purpose of all that? And talk about that a little bit. Um, at that time, our state was trying to pass, or some of us were hoping that a Medicaid expansion plan would be passed. And, um, well, why is that important? Um, the Medicaid program is very limiting in terms of the amount of money that a person can have. And for example, at that point in time, my son was getting um, Social Security disability. He got $858 a month. And um, that was not enough to... Um, with that, at the time, he got um, Medicare insurance, but that did not pay for his um, prescription medications or a lot of other co-pays. Um, there was not a Medicare supplement in the state of South Carolina for anyone under age 65, um, and there there is just not one. So if you happen to be um, permanently disabled in stage renal disease or blind and you're under age 65 in the state of South Carolina, there is no way for you to get 
a supplemental um, Medicare plan, you know, like you hear about plan E, F, and G and whatever. That was not possible for John. So um, we applied for Medicaid to try to help get the coverage. At that time, he was on about 30 medications um, to help get um, coverage for that. And not for any kind of, certainly there was not any kind of income associated with it. He just needed it for the health insurance benefit. He was unable to work at that time. Um, He was living with me and um, he was, um, he could not, he was turned down from Medicaid uh, because he made too much money. And um, we, we just... What do you mean... How did he make too much money? Because he wasn't able to talk about that connection there. His disability income was $858 a month. And because he was able to get disability, it put him out of an income bracket in order to qualify for Medicaid. There's some, I still am confused about some of that because that, amount should have been enough, just that amount only. I think it was because um, his father and I, his his father and stepmother live in another state, that um, at times we were obviously helping to support him. And so we justified, uh, I mean, we um, submitted any kind of um, money that we had given him each month or for what reason or whatever, very minimal. And for some reason, um, they determined that that was put him over the limit. So um, I was very willing, and my son was too, very willing to talk about this um, because maybe we weren't the stereotype that some people think about with Medicaid. Um, My son had worked since he was 15. I've worked since I was 15. Um, I'll be 65 next month. and just the the severity of his illness so overnight changed our situation that you know we just we needed help. And um, when I when I realized that that was not going to be possible, or I didn't think that was possible, and that there were so many other people in the in a similar gap situation which the Medicaid expansion plan would cover. It would allow for people to have some working income and still be able to qualify for health insurance. From the other side, from working in healthcare for over 25 years, the value of to the healthcare industry of having someone covered to some degree, even though Medicaid is not a good payer, um, it's certainly better than charity care or bad debt. So for all of those reasons, um, I was very much a proponent of the Medicaid expansion and very disappointed when it um, did not pass. We came and visited you at your house, and you and John told the story. And, you know, we ended up putting together a piece that would be used in the legislature to explain here is a perfect case study about the nuances of this legislation. And your story was one that many people didn't expect. Um, you have a healthcare background. So people, it's just commonly assumed that we just understand if we work in healthcare how to navigate this stuff. Two, um, 
you you represent a part of the population where you had income. He had gone to college, so why, why isn't he working? And so you had this generalization that many people could, in some way, connect with. That oh my gosh, if they if that happens to them, that could happen to me. Would you agree with that? In totally, some totally. And so with that, when we did this story and we put it together. This was 2013, and this started happening, what, 2009, 2010? Mm -hmm. What are the biggest things that happened to John over that three- to four-year period? Like, he was, he almost died. He he almost, he went from being perfectly healthy, um, working, working out regularly, having a steady um, relationship with a young lady, living completely independently, to um, over four months' time, nearly dying three times, having to learn how to swallow, how to feed himself, how to speak, how to sit, how to walk, um, how to function again. And then within a month's time after leaving the hospital, having to come and live with me, which he had not done in 10 years. Um, and by that time, he, he had already gotten on Medicare disability because of the um, severity of his illness. Nobody expected him to live. I think that's why he got on it so fast. Um, to immediately going into complete renal failure, um, which was a secondary consequence of the disease. And then he spent the most of the next four months, so that's now a total of eight months, um, in hospitals with um, having five vascular surgeries, trying to get access for adequate um, dialysis, um, numerous infections due to his condition, um, and he was on dialysis for 21 months, which I had never had any experience with dialysis. I thought it was um, horrific, barbarous. It was just barbaric. It was it was just horrible. Um, and he was grateful because that was how he stayed alive. And um, that whole time, so now we're up to about a two-year point, um, he was trying to get approved to be a transplant recipient. And by the end of about two years, he had been approved. Um, Duke said that transplant had never been um, verified in a situation that was as, I can't remember the word they used, um, but anyway, as bad as his had been. And so he had to go through a lot of testing, had to wait a long time. He was approved for a cadaveric transplant, which means obviously that it comes from a person who is deceased. And then at the same time, we started looking at living donor transplants, which are a lot um, safer in many ways. Um, the wait list for, a, um, for him at the time for a cadaveric uh, was estimated five years. Um, he was having um, a difficulty with, with getting adequate access for dialysis. Um, 
And so we started looking at living donors and put out the plea for that. And the way that it ended up, um, very ironically, was that um, I was the donor. Um, his, what, what was that like? Um, well, I didn't expect it at all because I was his caregiver and there was um, I was the only one working and, and doing everything. And so it didn't cross my mind. And also um, John and his father and my daughter all had the same blood type. They were A. And I didn't consider, I just, it didn't cross my mind. And um, his father was very willing, but because he had a couple of pre-existing conditions, um, he was not, he found out he was not eligible. And also my daughter, who happened to be pregnant with her first child at the time, could not be considered either. And so I said, well, test me. And because I um, am type O, um, I'm universal donor, and I ended up being a very good match. I matched on four out of six alleles, which usually a parent will only match on three. Um, and so after two years, again in April, this time April of 2012, um, John had, um, I was able to give him a kidney. And it was the, the months um, leading up to that, um, it was really, I didn't think I could do it. I mean, I just did not. I was exhausted. I had no close um, support. Um, I don't have any close family. And um, I have no siblings. My parents have been dead for years. And um, I didn't know how I could do it. But I couldn't continue to watch him I, 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 I really believe that if he had had to continue much longer dialysis, he would have he would have given up and he would have died. So um, just really in faith, I went ahead with the transplant and um, and it just all worked out. Um, I have two first cousins who came and stayed with me and um, John's father and stepmother took the time to stay with him in Durham. And um, I got some financial aid from the National Kidney Foundation. Uh, people at work donated their PTO, so I didn't ever lose income. Um, so all that was very just miraculous. And John thought that he would be fine after that and able to work again. And that was um, over six years ago, and that still really hasn't quite happened. But those were the two really intense years. Um, but I'm just so grateful for the Living Donor Program because the just the small things like the surgery could be scheduled. It wasn't like you're going to get a call in the middle of the night and you drive four hours and you don't know if it's going to work. And um, we knew I'd been put through. I. I I found that I was healthier than I ever thought possible, and um, or they wouldn't have let me do it. So the surgery was scheduled. Um, we were both in, in um, operating rooms at the same time. They just had to take the kidney from one room to the next. There was no time elapsed. Um, my kidney started functioning for him immediately, which... Um, Frequently, they say a person still has to stay on dialysis. So um, all of that has just been miraculous. I mean, he's not had any signs of rejection. Um, 
the complications have been due to the immunosuppressants with um, increased infect- risk of infection and a lot of other things that just really had to do more with um, life. I, I have said that um, John had the best physical, clinical care in the world. No questions. And, um, and in terms of social, emotional, mental, financial, um, the resources have just been almost non-existent just almost non-existent and they have both taxed those things have taxed us both to the point of at different times extreme depression um you know just um we, we still lack a lot in terms of treating the whole person so when we showed up on your doorstep you had gone through all this i mean and here we are we are the first group of people that want and come to share your story for a public policy conversation. I remember talking with you and you, you actually had some debate whether you wanted to do this or not. Um, Talk about your reservations. I remember Mm -hmm. because at the time, obviously you work for a healthcare system and that was a very political conversation in the state of South Carolina at that time. It still is. and But you knew you had to tell the story. Why? Um, you know, I, that's interesting because I don't really remember having that many reservations. But if it probably it would have. I am a very private person. My son is an extremely private person. So I guess that would have probably been the biggest issue. Um, and I think also, um, I think my son may have felt, you know, maybe he didn't want to advertise that he needed to be on Medicaid. Um, and I guess I was past the point of caring what anybody thought. But that's a big thing. I mean, let's, let's talk about that here in South Carolina. There's a big stigma associated to being on Medicaid. You know it as a healthcare communicator. You know what goes on in hospitals. We know what physicians and people think when they hear the word Medicaid come through the doors. Talk about that a little bit. That's a there is there is a huge stigma on that. And my son, I think, has been um, you know he's very been um, willing to talk to some of his friends um, who would not have any money problems. And, you know, just to really say, you know, if it hadn't been for um, Medicare, for example, I wouldn't be alive. And um, so I think that over the years, he's gotten a lot more comfortable in um, talking about that too. But yeah, there's still, you know, um, I hear it frequently that anybody that's on Medicaid is abusing the system they um they just don't want to work uh particularly women they just have another baby so that they can keep getting a a medicaid check um which again i mean john would not have gotten any money from medicaid but it just um there's such a stereotype um that you know if you're on medicaid you're just no good Now a quick break to give a quick shout out to the network that supports Intersection, 
Touchpoint Media, a collection of podcasts dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare, including digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health. Let's rejoin the show. Here you are, a mom, a healthcare communicator, someone that has witnessed their child go through all these situations, and you also know the public policy conversation that's happening at that current time. Um, What type of impact do you think your story made? I think it made zero impact. I mean, obviously. I mean, it just, it was so incredibly frustrating. And and it still is. And um, why do you why do you feel like that? Because no, our state. I don't. I mean, just very quickly after that video was produced. I mean, it was it was like the whole issue suddenly was just taken off the table. And I don't even remember why. But our state was just. I think it had to do with our governor at the time. And our state just um, no. We're not having anything to do with that. Here you are sitting with. A situation. You have a son at that time. How old is he? Would have, in twenty thirteen he would have been um, twenty nine. And you're a single mom trying to figure this out. Where did you go next? What ha- started happening next? Um. Well, somehow again, rather mysteriously. Um, the day that my second granddaughter was born, we were in Tennessee, and I got a call from the state Medicaid office saying that John had been approved for Medicaid. And to this day, I cannot tell you why. And so he did get on Medicaid, um, and that he has been on that periodically. Um, it comes up for review, and again at times, because he has tried to, um, to get at least part-time work, he will um, not get it. But um, other than that, um, you know, we, uh, we've we just really struggled. I mean, um, I have downsized until I cannot downsize anymore. Um, we just have, you know, really struggled. And then the book. And so then... Um, writing is a part of my background, and I have all, almost always kept journals, which is a part of my process, a part of the way that I heal or try to heal. And so several years ago, I started thinking, this has got to be a book. And I started writing, and I kept encouraging John to write because um, I thought it would help him process he also had um, post-traumatic stress disorder from all that he had been through, and he was pretty. Um, he was not living with me. He had moved out to a rental house, and occasionally, at different points in time, had a roommate. But I felt like um, it would help him if he could write down some of his thoughts. But he was not willing. I would take him journals, and he would never use them. And um, but I started working on, on my part, and he knew that I was. And um, finally, um, 
one day he sent me um, a file and he said, um, I've been writing this, see what you think. And the most interesting thing to me, he, he's for, for all these years, he has not been able, he's had real problems sleeping. He just cannot sleep. And so he wrote the his part, which is probably about a third of the book. Um, he wrote his entire part on his cell phone at night in his bed when he could not sleep. And I read it, and I I was I was like I just I could I was surprised. Um, I never knew he could write. He was always outside with a ball in his hand. He had, he was always smart, but never any interest. Um, and I I could tell that it was really good, and that he had a really strong voice. So um, I got in a writer's group again, and um, started working on putting his material in with mine, and that was probably two years ago. Um, and then about last fall, I submitted it to three different um, publishers, and it was submit, It was accepted for publication. And our book came out um, this past month. It's called Since John Got Sick, A Quest for Survival and Faith. Um, and it's a real honest um portrayal of everything that happened from each of our perspectives. Um, and it's, you know, it, it makes us both really vulnerable. And um, some people have said it's really raw. And it talks about the healthcare system and um, some not always good experiences um, with hospitals and doctors. Um, and it talks about the challenges that we face, still face today, financially. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, one of the reasons why I thought this was interesting to me is here is someone that has a son that went through a traumatic situation, understands the healthcare arena, fought for Medicaid, has put themselves in a position of public policy that sometimes is not the most accepted in many of the healthcare spaces in the state that we live in. And now you're writing a book about it where hard print words are in front of us. What we were you worried about talking in frame of my, I've got an employer that pays my bills to keep it going. And oh my gosh, can I write about hospitals? Talk about that balance that you dealt with. I'm still worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I stopped at two different points and decided I cannot go forward with this. This was after it had been accepted by a publisher um, because of my fear. And I just decided I'm... Um, I'm too old for this. I'm not going to be afraid of this anymore. And um, so the book came out. the The launch party was about. Um, what was just last last Saturday? What's that date? Um, May the twenty sixth. And um, the book is out. There was also um, a front page article in the Greenville News this past Monday, Memorial Day, um, with our pictures. Um, and I've not gotten really any feedback about it yet. I think that um, I finally decided 
I think I just think I just am not that important. I think I'm just not that important. <laughs> and people really won't read it and really won't notice and really won't care. And um, and I think that's probably true. And, and that makes me sad, too. But why is this story so important to tell? Because I think that the fact that it could, a crisis like that, could happen to anybody and there's no um there would have been no way to prepare for that i mean it just um the cost of health care is just astronomical and um there are just so many nuances and factors in it that I don't know. I, and I also, I know that I have the gift right. And I and I was um, given a really good, hard story. And my son had the willingness not only to keep trying on a daily basis to live, but to also be willing to share it. And um, I think those are gifts we have. And I, I think, I don't know, part of my faith journey is uh, I feel called on to share what, you know, my experience, strength, and any kind of hope I can bring to the situation. Do you think that the storytelling process is also somewhat maybe therapeutic to the writer? Totally. I mean, uh, people have, you know, I've, I've been tried to be as prepared as possible for feedback and some um friend shall we say in quotes said so why do you think she had to do this i mean i was really and i was prepared for that when it's like yeah some people are just gonna think that um i just have to whine about my pitiful story you know our pitiful story and um i don't think i whine i don't think that's what it's about and by god it's my story and i have the right to tell it um so to that degree, I don't really care what people think about it. I really, really hope that people would really read it. And I don't think too many people read books anymore. I you do. know, if they can't get it in two paragraphs on Facebook, they may not read it. But I think it, it just um, it has some really important life questions that affect our society and humanity as a whole. And and one other piece of just like public policy in a way that I'm also um, an advocate for to the degree that I can be, um, my son is very um, cognizant, probably more than I realize, that at some point in his life he will need another kidney. Um, even though I know somebody who's on the same kidney for 33 years, um, that is not the norm. So my son, at now age 34, um, knows that within his lifetime, he will be back on dialysis or he will have another transplant or one or two or whatever, if he's lucky. Um, and the way that the Medicare program works for end-stage renal disease, which is a huge gift, whoever passed it back when, you know, so very grateful. But for someone who is diagnosed with end-stage renal disease, they qualify for Medicare, 
regardless of age. And they can get that Medicare insurance as long as they are on dialysis, which is an expensive um, treatment, which the federal government pays for. As long as they are on dialysis, and then for 36 months after they receive um, a kidney. After that, most people go off it, which again um, leaves them depending on where they live, without adequate um, health insurance coverage or, or, or particularly drug insurance coverage. And so the number one reason that transplants, that, that people end up going back on dialysis is because they cannot afford their medication. They're, my son takes three immunosuppressant drugs right now, which are, um, they're not as expensive as some cancer drugs, but they are not cheap. I mean, without insurance, it would be very difficult to cover them. Um, people stop taking their medication because they cannot afford it. They end up going back on dialysis. Therefore, they go back on Medicare, and Medicare pays way more for dialysis than they would have if they had just kept them on consistently and helped them buy their medications. And so the, the National Kidney Foundation, it's one of their platforms that they lobby for, I guess, consistently to keep the, um, the Medicare benefit for end-stage renal patients to make it a lifelong benefit. Um, so that's also something that I hope very much to have a say, you know, impact on. What would you say to other people out there that are timid to tell their story that may not be in the direct situation that you're in, but are fighting just like you have and are will? Uh, many people are scared to tell it because they're scared of the repercussions of being open and honest. And, and that's, a, that's a hard thing to figure out. What, what are your thoughts on that path and that journey? Well... I pray a lot. <laughs> I, I know that's the only reason I'm still sitting here. Um, and it takes time. It just takes time to process and figure out and determine what is the right way, the right thing to do. Um, I was not worried about writing the book. Well, I was, but I was willing to go forward for myself with writing the book. I was still very protective of how it would affect John. And I said to him over and over, are you sure you want to do this? His name is in the title. His photo is on the cover of the book. Are you sure you want to do this? And he was fine all along with it. And again, very contrary to the private nature that he is. Um, And I think just a good example, though, I think We've both been through so much that we do want it to be of some benefit to anybody else, if it possibly can. And so we have a, a page for the book, um, SinceJohnGotSick.com. And about a week ago, a lady posted on there, and she had seen the article in the Anderson Independent. And she had Wegener's and was struggling with it. And she was diagnosed in 2017. And she really poured out her story there. And, um, 
and John responded to her, and since then they've they've taken that offline. Um, but you know, he was. Um, I think when you can help somebody else after what you've been through, I think I don't know if there's anything any more rewarding than that. Has this changed your viewpoint of healthcare? I mean, you work under the umbrella of it. You probably tie a little bit of a balance here, but it's a tough place to be in. It's a tough place to be in. Um, I, I, I had worked for seven years as a patient advocate right up until the time that John got sick. I had transferred back to marketing two months before that April 13th day. Um, And I am so grateful for that level of clinical experience because I was used to being in the trenches, so to speak. And so I wasn't um, scared of the hospital setting or intimidated by um, clinical professionals. And I know that that helped me to keep fighting um, to get him what he needed. And I was not going to accept any less. Um, and so now in my job where, um, besides being the oldest person in, uh, in my department, um, I'm really grateful for that previous clin- more clinical, in a clinical environment experience, and also everything that I have gone through with John, because it just helps me keep it real to know why are we trying to get messages out about healthcare? You know, I, I just, um, it's so much more to me than just the, um, the venues or the tactics to, of, of communicating healthcare, because I really deeply know the why and, and the, the value in it. You talked earlier about how you received world-class care. And if you've received it, it's a lot easier to market when you can look inside your organization and see that same care. Exactly. And I will say that um, I do a lot of marketing for our Cancer Institute, and I cannot say enough wonderful things about it. And I see the difference in the um, illness, the diagnoses, because what has happened with cancer over the past decades or whatever, there has been so much awareness, um, research, uh, public support that for somebody, a patient with cancer, there are so many resources available in so many ways. I mean, at our Cancer Institute, they're all kind of holistic aspects, um, yoga, acupuncture, whatever, support, uh, so much support um, that is so beneficial to the healing process. When someone has a rare autoimmune disease, um, it's isolating. They're just, that's why I appreciate that lady reaching out on Facebook. They're just, there's not, um, there's just not the same healing environment. So I can't, I can't single-handedly make that different, but I can affirm that there's some 
parts of healthcare, and, and from my experience, I would say particularly the cancer area, where there is just so much positive healing going on. And I think it has to do with awareness. Regardless of the technology, regardless of where we are, telling stories is still very basic. What is your formula for telling a good story? Um, For me, I have to be honest. Um, It's just tell the truth as I experienced it. Um, Don't try to soft pedal it. Somebody made the comment that I didn't soft that neither John nor I soft-pedaled anything about our experiences um, and just try to make it real. Allison Green, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and exploration. Most importantly, the many intersections inside the world of storytelling. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts exploring digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health. Have a good day.